one thing that I do and I've I've done for years, like throughout my work, is I've basically created a whole series of characters basically just to just to explore various parts of my own kind of my own body, my own identity and my own relationship to the world around me. Hello, my name is Eline Perez and you're listening to Are You an Artist? And today's artist is Abigail Jacqueline Jones, who generously shares with us her experience, how she explores the body, identity and the world through art. She also speaks about kinkiness and having no filter. This episode is extremely interesting and rich in references, so if you are curious about anything you hear, have a look at the podcast notes. Enjoy! Well, hello, Abby. I think we're about to yeah, start. At last. At last, after <laughs> all the setting up. Oh my God, that was a long one. <laughs> and I'm going to just start by uh, reading out a, a letter I've written to you. Okay. Um, dear Abby, you're another star I met working at Wilton's Music Hall. And what really made me want to have you in this podcast is how passionate you are about your work. Your Instagram bio says live artist, Storyteller, Rizzo or Rizzo artist, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, there are many schools of thought on that. So I pronounce it Rizzo, but you'll hear people say Rizzo and Rizzo. Like right. There's many different ways of saying it. <laughs> Rizzo then, and Zinister, which makes me wonder, what do you not do? <laughs> you always have projects going on. During our Wilton's breaks, I can witness you learning a long text or speaking passionately about your heroes or painting signs to support your friends' next performances. What a crazy, inspiring life you seem to have. I also admire the commitment and clarity in your ideas and direction. So thank you so much for allowing me to interview you. And my first question is, are you an artist? I mean... <sighs> I think if I wasn't at this point, then if I wasn't able to describe myself as that at that point, then I'd probably have some very severe self-esteem issues, frankly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I I, am an artist. I am a researcher as well. Um, and I dip my toes into performance every so often, um, trying to do so more and more, just trying to get my confidence up in that way. Um, I'm speaking to you now having just come off the back of doing my first my first hosting job as a as a cabaret host um yeah and i'm really grateful last that night you're, yeah. you're happy to do this this morning because oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah no i i mean i i kind of i wanted to try and get a bit of a lion after this because it was probably my last big commitment of the year um mm. what i did yesterday but um i kind of knew again living next to a building site that wasn't going to happen like I am woken up at eight o'clock in the morning regardless of what time I get to bed which is usually sometime past midnight or one o'clock um wow so yeah I had yeah thank you for having me on well that's that's so great and I mean because you, you have all these things why why are you still working at Wilton's yeah no I mean it's it's I mean it's been good it's been good for kind of just flexibility in that way um to say something really boring about it but like I I feel like it's just such a like a wonderful and welcoming and creative environment just to be in there's just so many like just amazingly creative people that work in yeah. that space and it's it's a space that kind of 
I often say it's like a good place to kind of maladaptively daydream um, working <laughs> at Wilton's just because like it, it's a place where even like even like even in the midst of busy shift, it's very easy to kind of drift off in the whole sort of like history and like atmosphere of the place. That's true. Um, just being this just wonderfully rich, just ancient building with such a storied history and such a connection to like just a, a, such a connection to the local area to the vet to the to the kind of very kind of backwater east east end setting that it's it's in um so yeah i've i i mean i have i have found it a very rewarding space to be in and it has also fed my work quite a lot um so one of the characters that I developed, which was based on the early life and the sort of teenage life of a um, a 19th century female giant who was exhibited by P.T. Barnum um, during her lifetime, whose name was Anna Swan. Um, I kind of came to that project by just realising that the space I was in at Wilton's is sort of very, kind of, very run down almost like burnt out looking husk of this old victorian house of entertainments sort of reminded me a lot of um a lot of pc barnum's american museum in downtown new york um or how i would imagine it would have looked after the fire that took it um that destroyed it in um july of 1865 um when the real life inspiration for my character the real life Anna Swan this female giant would have been inside as a kind of I think she was about 18 or 19 at the time being exhibited and I just kind of imagined just kind of standing in that space sort of looking at these kind of worn out walls I mean the American Museum was this space of it was about four or five stories of just these like this maze of like rooms and lounges and salons just filled with like so many different either human exhibits or animal exhibits or just um curiosities curiosities from history that all surrounded this like giant like sort of theater space which was which was kind of euphemistically known as the lecture theater um but it was it was predominantly used as a place for variety entertainment to be shown, which is very much it's very similar to the kind of setup that we have at Wilton's and how it would have been back in the days when it was actually an operating traditional musical in the nineteenth century. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, like, just imagining that um, was just yeah. That that's that's basically how it just that, how that project just spawned was me just like standing behind the bar, just looking out at the empty <laughs> alley behind us that was all kind of like wow. lit with those lamps that kind of they're not gas lit, but they look like the old traditional gas lamps you would have seen in the Victorian era. I'm just thinking how just yeah, just imagining myself as this like as this giant character, sort of like living in the imagining what would have happened had she not actually kind of. Had she survived but not actually made it out of the fire and was just like living in the ruins of that building and trying to sort of piece everything back together. Oh, wow. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's it's always been an inspirational space. And I think that's kind of why after like four years of working there, like I've like out of everyone who works in that space, I've been working there a lot longer than pretty much everyone else. Like it's so hard to get out, you know, yes. it's so hard to sort of like leave that space and even though like 
for the sake of my like my creative career I'm sort of having to think about moving on at this point like I don't want to leave it entirely but it's it's but yeah it's just keep a foot there and yeah of yeah. course like I, I yeah just become just be someone who drops in every so often just like one of those parts of the furniture that's never truly gone <laughs> That, that just is, is just like there. a bit of, yeah like a little bit of a, a little bit of a sort of like wandering spirit I guess like a, like someone who just like haunts every so often yes. like <laughs> you know wow and if I go back to like your childhood do you have a, a, a first creative memory the very first creation that you did oh god um so I mean I've I've always been I've always been one for kind of Like I, I've I've always had quite a strong sort of like storytelling bent about me. I've always been like quite a bit of a creative writer. Um, I remember back when I was in primary school, I did like write a lot of a lot of like short stories and um, and sort of short books that like often had sort of graphic components to them as well. Um, so I remember like I used to be part of this um this gifted class at my old primary school where I was literally just like the top performing students from every year in the the junior portion of the school which would have been from year three up to year six so about sort of seven up to eleven um and I remember I remember I wrote like a really I wrote I wrote a really long adaptation of a an old comic strip from the, the late 1950s um, called The Black Sapper. Um, I think it was a cartoon that appeared in the Sparky comic, if I remember rightly. It was, oh, wow. it was one of, it was like, it was like an old school um, sort of British children's comic. Like, That's cool. There's only, there's only like a few of, I, I think the Beano might be the only one of them left now, but there used to be like tons of them. I mean, there was the Dandy when I was growing up. And like before my time, there used to be like comics like The Topper and The Beezer, um, like which I, I used to be able to read because um, the publisher who created all these comics, DC Thompson, used to um, put out this strip every month called Classics from the Comics, which mm -hmm. just ran strips all the way, as I say, going back to the 1950s all the way up to sort of the 90s, I guess, just before my time. Um So I, I and this this story was all about this this supervillain who kind of did his evil deeds by building he built this sort of giant black tunneling machine that he'd just used to sort of tunnel around and um and sort of like access things like bank vaults and like I don't know, just just things like that basically. So I wrote I wrote I remember writing an adaptation of that for that class. I also on the comic theme, um when I was about I think seven or eight years old um I actually wrote like a solid four or five page story which I'm pretty sure we still have somewhere knocking around oh wow that'd be great um which um yeah was based on a load of a load of characters from from the Beano this comic I mentioned earlier that I was obsessed with all the way up through primary school um and I wrote it for a competition that was literally called best Beano fan ever um which sadly I didn't win oh. but I came very I came very close like they have like good. a winner's prize and like a series of runners-up prizes but like I remember getting a letter from them saying they were so impressed with the entry that they actually gave me like an additional prize on top of oh, the runners-up nice. prizes so I was very happy with that but like I also remember I wrote this one story that I remember being called Wolf Steam and I remember absolutely fuck all about it I just remember the name it was something I came up with again when I was about seven but I think, I think after that, like it, I, I sort of took quite a bit of a break from from sort of both 
fiction reading and writing when I was sort of in my late primary school, early secondary school years. Um, I think a lot of that came down to the fact that I just had a really bad problem with skim reading books at the time. So oh. I'd kind of just rush through everything and not really pick up anything from, from fiction. Like, kind of much preferred, like, reading kind of non-fiction or reading reference books. Like, I had a lot of books about things like um, contemporary architecture and, like, the history of the London Underground, for example, which are, like really exciting topics to be into as like an 11 or 12 year old mm. um hey maybe maybe at this point you could possibly tell i'm autistic and have special interests but <laughs> but you're um, very interested in history no because... yes yeah and I, i i kind of yeah i think as i kind of returned to um sort of creating fiction and storytelling when i was about 15 16 like mm -hmm. I kind of started to build that back in a bit more. Like I, I, I started to build the kind of the I, 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 I look I looked a lot of sort of like history and histories and also kind of geographies as well. Mm. Like I kind of became obsessed with just reimagining just spaces that I was familiar with, or or like little secrets that I kind of just I, I kind of knew about, but people like in people who are in the same landscapes may not have been able to to sort of see or perceive quite so evidently um so my first foray back into writing fiction or attempting to do so um when I was about 15 um I took part in this event called National Novel Writing Month which we're recording this in November is actually going on at the moment um and it's a challenge to write um 50,000 words of a novel within the 30 days of November Okay. And this was a challenge I I um, completed when I was when I was fifteen slash sixteen because my birthday's in November as well, um, and uh, in my GCSE year while I was studying for my GCSEs, um, and that's the story I wrote for that was a story called Brompton Road, um, and it was it was like a very classic kind of fantasy story about like a kid who finds like a secret portal into like another world. Um, And the portal in question that I kind of invented was um, based off, well, the name Brompton Road actually comes from a, a closed tube station on the Piccadilly line between Knightsbridge and South Kensington. Mm -hmm. um, it was closed in the 1920s, I think, because they were sort of planning to extend the line just to sort of like make the line run a bit faster because there there are a lot of stops on the Piccadilly line and it's it's like a they're, they're very close together in central London um and the stations below ground and above ground still exist like it is it's still a functioning station you can see like evidence of the platforms sort of being sealed off by this sort of random wall below ground and there's a there's another station close by um that also closed roughly at the same time called Down Street, which um, actually features in a book called, by Neil Gaiman called Neverwhere. It's sort of where the big conclusion happens, where like the like the sort of lead characters meet the main villain of that story, which is a little bit more evident. Like there's, you'll just see as you're going between like Green Park and Hyde Park Corner, if you look out one side of the train, you'll see this like huge golden brick wall oh. just coming out of the side of the tunnel. And like I just kind of imagine this idea of like 
these like this train just like somehow knowing to stop and let this little kid out and just go and, and just let them into this sort of fantasy world that lay b- behind these golden walls That's that just crazy, randomly yes. pop up on the Piccadilly line, you know. Mm-mm. Um so like but yeah, like but from that point on, sort of like histories and geographies really like strongly featured in in that work and and like really continue to do so like into the present day. Like mm. even though I've kind of moved in more recent writing away from looking at my kind of direct environments my direct histories my direct geographies a bit more and and trying to explore some things that I'm not quite as sort of directly experienced with personally mm-hmm. um yeah that's that's always been a running theme like yeah. throughout my work is just like having this hyper fixation just exploring and reimagining sort of real particularly social histories and geographies surrounding me mm. um yeah I mean one like I'm just an aside just to finish this point off like I'm always a bit of a stickler for geographical accuracy when it comes to books I read as well like I will always I like, will check it oh god yeah oh, like wow. I, I remember like I, <laughs> I I spoke to um like I, I spoke to a researcher a little while back and I um as like uh, I decided because of the fact that, um, and I'll come to talk about a bit more about this later, I had some Arts Council funding and I had some like sort of monetary um, stipends I could pay my interviewees. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't take me up on it. So I decided just to send her like a goodie bag full of um, like just printed matter that I'd created over yes. the course of the last few years. And one of the things I sent her was this um, hand-drawn map of central London that I created during the COVID-19 lockdowns. Um, and when she received this, she so, told me wait, that... Wait, you, you drew a map of London? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll talk about it more in a second. Oh, wow. Like, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I sent her this map and she, um, like, she told me that, um, like... She'd been reading this series of books um, called the PC the PC Peter Grant series by an author called Ben Aronovich, um, which is basically a story a, a story series about a secret wing of London's Metropolitan Police that like uses magic and deals with the supernatural. Mm. Um, and she was saying that like she like she wanted to use the maps to try and like trace the locations where everything took place because the one thing I appreciate about those books is they were intensely geographically accurate you know you could trace exactly where these characters had gone and it was very easy to see where the 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 sort of the the buildings the settings like of these stories all kind of fit together and how they they also kind of um those are kind of focused a lot on kind of just forgotten about places in London. A lot of like sort of suburban areas are kind of discarded in like popular conceptions of London, like within like within without without the art space. So I remember like there were there was a whole section there was a whole chapter in one of these books about a um a group of vampires who lived in the kind of outer London suburb of Purley, which is just like <laughs> completely in the middle of nowhere. It's like Purley is not a place that people think about unless you are directly from there. That's so true. Um, so yeah, I, 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 yeah, that's something I very much appreciate about other people's work okay. if they're able to build those those sort of histories and geographies in really tight, and, and I can see they've done their research, and it's something that just penetrates everything I do really. Oh wow, and like. When so when you create something new, what's the feeling driving it? 
Um, I mean, there's a bit of there's there's a bit of kind of necessity about it, really. Mm-hmm. So I, I I mean, one thing that people I I, th- I think I found this more with people who are kind of outside of art spaces or have maybe only ever kind of seen sort of fine art or visual art certainly through the lens of the very kind of commercialized kind of Mayfair gallery kind of spaces they always kind of ask me like well first of all the first thing they usually ask me is do I paint or do I sculpt and the answer to that is neither frankly um (laughs) because apparently those are the only two art forms exist for a lot of people you sculpt (laughs) oh yeah the two genders paint or sculpt (laughs) yeah um but I I mean whenever people ask me about my influences like the artists who influenced me that kind of got me into creating art or sort of writing or sort of performing in the first place like the answer to that is like there weren't really that many like the idea of me having influences and heroes came on a lot later and I mean I mean I could certainly list them and as you said I've I've spoken about sort of several of them as we've as we've sort of been hanging out at work like I I know I've just spent a lot of the last couple of months just chatting just endlessly about Annie Sprinkle the um the the sex worker turned performance artist extraordinaire you know but um I think for me like art and writing just creativity in general just gave me the ability to say a lot of the things I wouldn't have been able to say um just literally just as myself like I kind of one thing that I do and I've I've done for years like throughout my work is I've basically created a whole series of characters basically just to just to explore various parts of my own kind of my own body my own identity and my own relationship to the world around me um and this I, I think I think there is something that kind of like links back to um, my experience with with kind of neurodivergence, my experience of being an autistic person, of being someone who sort of struggles with a lot of social anxiety and kind of has a lot of just I don't know I don't know like a lot of things that people would perceive to be kind of just wrong or kind of weird about them. I mean, certainly growing up that I felt like I just needed an outlet for all of these things. Um, and, like, quite often, like, quite quite often I don't even realise that I'm sort of, like, getting as as a significant an, in, an insight into my own psyche as I actually am through creating work. Yeah. And, like, the greatest example I can think about for this is I, when I, when I was... In my final year of school and the kind of year or so, like, before I started university, um, I wrote a book that is probably, like, probably rivals War and Peace for length. And I'm not even joking about that. It's, like, into, like, I think the I think before I stopped working on it, like, the draft I had was, like, for one book was the equivalent of, like, two-thirds of the entire Harry Potter series. Oh, my God. I'm not even joking. It was, like, in the 600 or 700,000 word kind of range. Um, and it wasn't good. Like, I'm, I'm just a straight-up say that. It, it was it was an absolutely trash piece of writing that I was just using as a way to, like, explore, like, uh-huh. just elements wow. of person. That's um, interesting. But, no, the, the, the kind of 
the the story was set within this this like kind of it was set within a boarding school space, which kind of speaks a lot to like my experiences of having gone to like a, a very prestigious school growing up, which wasn't a boarding school, but it was it was of that kind of echelon. Like it was it was sort of one of those schools that's kind of up there with the Eatons and Harrows of the world, um, and like it was set within this this like boarding house that it was it was like a girls' boarding house, and like every one of the kind of side character girls was like they had like one kind of personality trait that was just everyone had like a personality trait that was so clearly drawn from just divisions of myself so there was one person who had like this absolutely kind of photographic memory for maps and just like an like a really intimate like sort of cab driver's knowledge of the streets of London there was another one who um was quite sporty and like was like a kind of this 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 kind of prodigious player of like a this one very particular sport that I played um growing up which um the name of which was Eaton Fives it's a very kind of private school thing I'm not going to try and explain what it is now because that will take up quite a big chunk of the rest <laughs> of this podcast um and there are a lot of, a lot of the characters were like that and then you also had these um the two main girls who were sisters one of whom what like one of whom was this absolute sort of workaholic um sort of study obsessed teenager who just like would sacrifice absolutely everything in her life for the pursuit of just an extra couple of percentage points on her grades and just try and get into the best university try and get herself like the best possible job she could and set herself up for the future as best she could and then the other one was just this kind of very like ridiculously imaginative playful kind of waif-like um young girl who also just happened to be like also happened to be like super tall which I am as well and also like I wrote in that she had like she had like breasts that were so kind of like non-existently kind of transparent on her body that you could see her rib cage through it and I'm like I was basically describing what I thought I would look like had I been born a cis girl Mm. you know and like I also want to say that I stopped working on this book like the second I came out to myself as trans Mm. like because it was so clearly like a piece of work that I was just doing to kind of like essentially psychoanalyze myself and kind of try and figure out what the hell these kind of what the hell my kind of body was, what the hell my kind of psychology was as someone who'd, like, grown up in, like, a very heavily masculine-dominated environment. Um, As someone who was an only child, someone who didn't really have... It's kind of also, like, a weird middle child in my family as well. Like, there's no one in my family that's within, like, a solid half-decade of me in age, you know? And just, like, also went to all boys' schools their entire life, just had, like, just, and and was also just, like, as I say, autistic and had, like, just very little sort of social or psychological connection to any of the people around me. Yeah. Trying to figure out what that kind of was and what my kind of ideal childhood would have looked like, Mm. you know, and what my kind of ideal future might look like kind of led me to that place. So, like creativity's always been a way of exploring that for me and like in my in my current project which um is kind of 
is all about my my kind of I mean it's 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 to I mean, I mean to put it simply a lot of it is like kind of to do with how like sort of my kink has basically helped me kind of explore my relationship with my body and my relationship with with gender and with the kind of socio-political world around me like it still all comes back to just like trying to figure out how I kind of relate to the world around me how I kind of how I how I fit into this space and how I relate to that space and like just trying to just just and also just trying to deal with the kind of like the the like the anxieties that I feel about the world around me as well mm-hmm. um you know and they're 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 kind of and and doing so in ways that feel like comfortable to me yeah um and <laughs> Yeah. Not that someone tells you, do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, about making sense, no? Like Yeah, no, completely. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's the entire purpose of it. Because, I mean, I feel like the world is a strange enough place as it is. Like, it's a confusing enough place as it is. But to to have gone through a significant portion of your life, like, because, like, I didn't really, ha- I didn't really know what it meant to be trans at all until I was, like, almost in my 20s like I came out when I was about 19 and like I I mean to me like growing up like trans issues were not talked about like and and like trans bodies weren't seen like the most you'd ever see of like trans people in sort of media or culture or in educational spaces but like documentaries like The Pregnant Man for example which is on Channel 4 when I was about I'm going to say I was about nine years old, maybe ten. Okay. And, like, but even then, like, as someone who, like, was kind of young at the time, didn't really, like, that was just confusion to you. You see a title, a title of a TV show called The Pregnant Man, and you see that advertised, you think, like, how the hell does that work? <laughs> you know, like, you, you, you kind of you think just to, to sort of quote kindergarten cop for a second, like, um, boys have a penis and girls have a vagina, you know, that's, that's how it works. You're trying to think, like, how the, how the fuck is this man squeezing that out of, out of that, you know? Um, but like, so I, I didn't really, I didn't really know, I didn't really know what it meant to be trans. I had no language, no lexicon for that. And like, even though I was, um, I was diagnosed autistic at about the age of 13 and it was like very obvious, like from early childhood that I was autistic. Like it's only been within the last 18 months I've really been able to, that people have, I've really been able to properly explore what it means to be autistic and what, like and explore a lot of elements of my diagnosis that I didn't even know were kind of factors of it, I guess. Um, and I, and, and I, I kind of feel, I kind of, I kind of feel a little bit bitter about the fact that just no one actually gave me the language or gave the information that I needed to explore these on sort of more normal terms, I guess. And I had to try and piece everything together myself and, for me, creativity, like making art, making fiction, um, was just making stories as a way of me doing that when no one else would really give me that information, you know. And I'm sort of, I don't know, And on the one hand, I'm so glad there is so much more information out there just for, like, trans kids, for neurodivergent kids now. Mm-hmm. They don't have to go through that struggle of trying to just, of feeling wrong, you know, um, in 
just in life as they're going through um as they're going through school as they're going through puberty as as they're going through everything you know yeah yeah um and yeah i'm 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 so happy that's the case now but also just i mean i am a little bit sad that i never i never got to explore these things on my own terms with with like the language i so desperately needed but like at least that's the kind of silver lining that i got from it like it's made me just so strong and so powerful an artist yes. to have had that experience. And I know that like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate way to come about your kind of career, your calling, you know, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's my story. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's really, I mean, you are a really strong woman and I, <laughs> thank, you. Um, so, so, thank you so much for sharing this because yeah. And because you're learning a lot about yourself, how do you feel when it comes to creating with people? Um, Is this something you yeah. do or want well, to I, do? Well, I, I think this really comes down to the differences I've seen in sort of working within visual art spaces and working within theatrical spaces. Because, like, my background, my um, my sort of study background is in, is in fine art, is in visual art. That's what I went to university for. Um, I was a goldsmith student for three years um studying ba fine art um but it wasn't and and that was like making fine art in a lot of cases is a a very solitary process like you do think of just like singular artists in singular studios sort of creating work and uh, like of course collaborations do exist but they tend to be like very kind of kind of improvised and ad hoc and like I don't like this probably isn't going to be everyone's experience, but they were, they felt very kind of temporary to me. There wasn't any sort of like, it was, it was, I found it very hard to sort of develop any sort of close connections or close collaborations in that space. But after I, I put on a solo show about two years ago, which I actually won an award to get the opportunity to host. Um, it was, uh, there was like only a kind of like, small to mid-size award it was something given out by a um a group called the Barbican Arts Group Trust um who have like a series of studio and gallery spaces in Walthamstow um and yeah I submitted a piece for their um their open exhibition which happens at the end of every year and they gave me the opportunity to host like a, a big solo show in their project space um, that process kind of burnt me really, uh, really burnt me out because, I mean, not just because it was the middle of the pandemic, we were in lockdown at that time, I was unemployed at that time, because obviously, um, like, I had my job in Wilton's, and that, Wilton's is a theatre, it wasn't open at the time, mm. um, and the gallery kind of really didn't give me any support oh. as a creative, and, and like, considering a lot of my support networks had broken down during the pandemic, I ha- I had sort of nothing and no one creating that piece um that that body of work um apart from one piece that I created for that show which was a kind of six foot high like Victorian style double skirt and crinoline cage um which I kind of used to portray um the character I spoke about earlier the 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 19th century female giant Anna Swan um which that was a piece I did get to make with a very close friend and a very close friend of mine and textile artist um, named Zoe Sanders, wonderful woman. Um, but like 
outside of that, it was just a very solitary process. And like, it, it, mess, it messed with my mind. I mean, I, I like working with people. I like working around people. I kind of need people to kind of keep me on the straight and narrow a lot uh-huh. of the time with my own sort of creativity and my own kind of mental state to stop me kind of spiraling, I guess. <laughs> Maybe into to ground like, you, yeah. Yeah, basically. Um, but after that, like, I basically started like exploring like theatre space, like fringe theatre space, um, as a potential conduit for my work. Um and I remember going to this networking event at the Yard Theatre in Hackney Wick, um, where I met this amazing, um, just astonishingly talented young comedian um, called Lorna Rose Treen, who, like, if you've not heard of her yet, you almost certainly will in the next year, because she's been blowing the fuck up at the moment. Oh, like, wow. she won, <laughs> like, she sold out her edinburgh run she sold out soho this year several times over she won joke of the fringe this year um she became the first ever like double award winner at the funny women awards like she's been on the bbc this year like quite a lot um but we we got to know each other and after i went on this like massive rant about just just on instagram my instagram stories about how kind of how inaccessible and how kind of just just closed off and how solitary a lot of the sort of visual art world was. She invited me to this this speed networking event that she ran herself for kind of like theatre makers and comedians and just various various people from the world kind of fringing off West End theatre. And I ended up meeting just First of all, I ended up meeting a load of amazing performers through that space. Um, just people that have been so supportive of mm. my kind of my work trying to sort of like edge into a more theatrical space. Um, just to drop another few names, like people like um Frankie Thompson, who for my mind might be like the best British performance artist of my generation, and mm. um like the kind of Clown ventriloquist Lachlan Werner and his director Laurie Lux, who I've been working with this year to develop my own work. Um, and also um my good friend Everly, um, who ran a um a theatre company called Hoo Ha House, which I kind of worked with as a way of trying to get myself like used to working with theatrical spaces and working with them in particular over the following year throughout 2022, I got to see what kind of sort of dramaturgical and kind of theatrical rehearsal spaces kind of looked like and how just wonderfully playful and collaborative they were and how how much closer the the collaborative relationship seemed to be within theatrical spaces as compared to artistic ones. And I just thought, we as visual artists have so much to learn from that. And I think I really want to find ways of taking that that sort of theatrical method of collaboration and, and long-term collaboration into, into every single avenue of my creative practice now. And this is this is something I've spoken about with a lot of other a lot of other people who come from a more kind of like a more fine art background who like a lot of whom have edged into the world of performance. There's like another performer I'm very close with, um, who was actually one of my tutors at Goldsmiths, um, a kind of very 
strange kind of like comedy sort of absurdist comedy performer called louise ashcroft Ooh, like we're yeah so like we've been talking a lot about sort of ways of trying to introduce um or trying to trying to sort of like cross-pollinate a lot of like the 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 best working methods that we've gathered that we've gathered from theatre spaces with the best that we've gathered that we've gathered from kind of artistic space and trying to really blend them together into this perfect kind of perfect collaborative kind of like I was going to say unstructured which it kind of is but like a very kind of deliberately unstructured way of working mm-hmm. that just just allows for just so many different kind of so many, so many different kind of just absurdist or avant-garde possibilities, mm-hmm. you know. So, like, yeah, I mean, I mean, I I really value collaboration, even though like a lot of my work is still very kind of solo. I guess like I've 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 like there are a lot of people who who work within my projects that are like I have, and particularly over the last year as I've been working through. Um, developing my new body of work and and having support from um, Arts Council England's Developing Your Creative Practice program to do that. Um, I've started working with a lot of people like performance mentors who, like, as I I mentioned, Laurie Lux earlier. Um, I've also started working with a burlesque performer that I first met at Wilton's, actually, um, Ida Sanguin, who was one of the, um, who was one of the performers at the Bowie Cabaret that we have every year. Um, and I've started working with kind of academic supervisors and I've now got um, all these connections in the United States who I've started working with. Um, so like I, I'm, I'm like quite close with um, the research I mentioned earlier while I was talking about the Peter Grant series as a, as a woman called Catherine Gates, who's been just so useful at just plugging me into all these kind of research and performance spaces um on the other side of the atlantic to help develop my work so like there's there's like i'm not in a space where i have like a, a sort of devoted collaborative partner in a way that a lot of my connections in theater do like for example like my friend frankie um has um their partner live um and like um Lorna the comedian I had earlier like they work with um they work with another comedian a lot called John Oldfield like they all have their kind of like very close they're very close buddies in this world yeah, where yeah. I don't have that yet but like I have really started to incorporate their way of working into just trying to just cultivate this space of of collaborators for my work mm-hmm. and just 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 try and build a community around my work and I mean the work that I've been doing at the moment is so like has has just been so fulfilling both for me and for a lot of the the peoples and communities I have worked with mm. in that time. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And what would you say is your strength as an artist and but also as a human being? Uh, I mean, I th- I think that I think that a lot of it just comes down to kind of a lot of it is is breadth of imagination, I guess. But all of it's also just <laughs> I mean, I think part of it's also just a bit of a lack of filter as well. <laughs> like because a lot of the work I do, like particularly the work I'm doing at the moment, like is is so heavily embedded in kink space. Like a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment is sort of so I'm I'm gonna preface this by by saying, because 
obviously anyone from anyone who's like listening to this we have not got any cameras set up like I as I said earlier I am a trans woman I am also like extremely tall like sort of regardless oh, of yes. gender She's. Um, <laughs> yeah and like um a lot of so like and a lot of my kind of exposure to kind of like the idea of like a woman who could be like my sort of size came from like heavily kind of either kind of like freak show television or like kind of very highly eroticized or fetishized media. So things like, like sort of Amazonian or sort of giantess fetish material. And a lot of the work that I've been trying to do at the moment has been, has been just trying to kind of reclaim um, the kind of the identity of, of, of giantess and use that to tell a story about my own kind of my own my own coming out process and my own relationship with my body as a as a woman who is six foot seven um and also just kind of yeah kind of, kind of also kind of also explore the kind of giantess body as something that could be like very kind of like rebelliously and kind of like erotic in a very queer way in a very kind of just revolutionary way I guess like use it like using the whole kind of, like the ideas of kind of just this kind of destructively sublime body as like a sort of a sort of this this fantastical body with the potential just to kind of like eradicate every kind of like system of injustice in the world and sort of leave behind a space where like something that's genuinely kind of yeah like kind of queer and tender and post-capitalist where like the <laughs> ideas of like just like the like the gender binary just doesn't exist anymore mm. you know um and also also kind of realizing that as much as I did kind of attach myself to like sort of imagery of um like I mean like I I kind of I kind of found a lot of um a lot of the imagery a lot of the imagery that kind of inspired me to kind of come out and make me realize that I sort of could be taken you know seriously as a woman as someone who is this tall um like also as I say came from um just discovering them through kind of like just as I say freak show or fetish spaces because that was the only place you could ever kind of see them and um just feeling so ashamed of of this fact growing up because like like I, I, I kind of, I'm gonna go on so many tangents. Like explain this, it's like <laughs> such a difficult thing to explain. But like, I often, like I often speak about this idea of the um the B versus do conundrum, which as I call it, like the idea that for a lot of queer and trans people gr- growing up in a world like a very heterosexist world where, um, like the idea of like like sort of gender identity and ge- and the things you should get sort of gender euphoria from like have to be very just distinct and discreet and mutually exclusive from the things that you're supposed to drive like kind of sexual attraction from and how for queer people it's, it can be very difficult to try and piece together like when you see a body that like you you feel some sort of attraction to that doesn't line up with those heterosexist norms like trying to think to yourself like like 
do I like do I kind of admire this person for their kind of for their their look, their personality, their sense of style, etc. Mm-hmm. Um or do I kind of just want to fuck them, basically? <laughs> and this this is like this is like a question that like and like as as like somebody growing up, and particularly somebody growing up assigned male as birth, like the inevitable answer to that question, particularly when you look at like any sort of feminine body is going to be the latter. Like, because that's just the culture you've grown up with. So, like, when I came across a lot of these bodies, like, particularly as someone who just was absolutely terrified of the idea of male sexuality and sort of, like, was terrified of, like, the sort of changing, like, sort of testosterone fueled adolescent bodies I was surrounded with and that kind of all all male environment that I sort of grew up in through school. Like, I was that just, must like... That have been really scary. Yeah, I was just, like, not only like might I actually have a sexuality but it might also be like a kind of a weird a deviant sexuality and like and this wasn't something I ever kind of acted upon like I was so like I was just so uncomfortable with the idea of like sexuality the idea of like ever kind of ex- just exploring any of that was just like off the table for me mm. but I kept being drawn to these images and eventually I kind of discovered this space where like just because and partly because I was so kind of afraid of social media at the time where somebody had just taken to reposting very kind of innocuous images of like women who were like six foot six or taller just as kind of masturbatory material on DeviantArt but like I kind of eventually found this and started like clicking through a lot of the links as soon as I found them and kind of discovered all these amazing people and these kind of amazing kind of amazing kind of stories of existing within kind of very um non-normative bodies if, if you like like it's kind of like even seeing someone who's like even seeing men who are kind of upwards of six foot six is not like massively common yeah, yeah um, that's for sure. so like to see you having to do deal with that as a woman you know having to sort of deal with like the additional pressure of being that much of an outlier in your sort of gendered space and like coming through it with a real resilience as well like really embracing their bodies and being really positive about their bodies like just eventually like it it kind of made me realize like I was kind of that I was trans basically that I kind of I it wasn't like a sexual thing for me. It was just like, I, I was just in, I, I just had gender euphoria looking at those bodies, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and this all kind of gelled up with the idea that I had this, this fear of me kind of like bulking out and sort of growing muscly as sort of boys do and all these different things. And like, but I mean, as I say, later on, later on down the line, as I kind of, as I kind of, after I kind of went on um, sort of hormone replacement therapy, as I went on estrogen and um, and deca, particularly after I went on decapeptil, which is the drug that we use in the UK to um, to sort of um, reduce testosterone levels okay. within within trans femme bodies, um, I kind of eventually began to revisit the body of like particularly the supernatural giantess, like. Um, like I come back, I come back to things like um, I come back to things like the old cult B movie, Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman, a lot. Mm. Like those sorts of kind of like sort of supernaturally scaled feminine bodies, and like kind of sort of 
Well, it starts off as a very ironic thing, me kind of like identifying myself as a as a giantess, you know. But then I kind of started to realise that it was something that could actually be like a very a very sort of revolutionary act. And I kind of did realise that it was something that like the idea of being sort of like supernaturally powerful was something that was kind of very like that was actually kind of erotic to me. So like to come back to the idea of that kind of like be versus do conundrum, like the answer was kind of both. Like it was kind of like I wanted to I kind of wanted to be those bodies, but I also like found quite a lot of I found quite a lot of eroticism from actually kind of embodying those fantasies, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and this is where we kind of come back to me having no filter because I've kind <laughs> of just I, I like a lot of my work kind of like comes back to me like saying that like I have this kink it's absolutely intrinsic to my understanding of my body of my gender identity of my sexuality and of my relationship with the world around me and there is nothing wrong with that Mm -hmm. and that's and having that lack of filter my ability to be able to say this and say this sort of confidently and say this proudly even though like I know if I'd somehow become like a sort of noteworthy artist like I am setting myself up for a lot of controversy by saying this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like, I, feel like, I feel like I have kind of a duty to explore these things and also to actually kind of like take seriously like just the community. Um, like I, I've started doing a lot of exploring of like online and kind of sorry, real life um, sort of size kink communities, like people who like find kind of like, you kind of do derive kind of eroticism from like the idea of, um, the idea of like sort of giants and sort of tinies and like growth and shrinking and sort of like body, like expansion and modification and everything. Mm -hmm. And just like really look into just the immense creativity the immense imagination and the just unbelievable humour and absurdity of those spaces and their awareness of that, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and it's it's introduced me to so many just astonishing people as well doing that work. And, and people have really used, like, sort of kink and the erotic imagination to explore their relationships with completely tangential elements of their body. So... I mean, I, I'm not the only, I'm not the only kind of like tall trans woman who's ever kind of like, like had to use, um, sort of these very kind of like eroticized or fetishized kind of images of like sort of tall womanhood in order to sort of come out. I spoke to another, um, another trans woman who goes by the name of Miss Canada online who um had worked for year who had like written like erotic size stories and worked as a as a kind of as a kind of, a kind of like size kink dom for several years mm-hmm. before um coming out as a trans woman um and kind of using that persona as a way of like exploring just womanhood and the ideas of kind of like i guess dominant womanhood as well um, and I also spoke to another another woman who um, like has several layers of, of pseudonyms online um, because of the fact that she works in a uh, an educational nonprofit in Texas, which like you 
basically can't do if you're not just like perfectly like cisgender <laughs> heterosexual <laughs> vanilla you know like any sort of like sexual gender deviance is like a big no-no in sort of like republican controlled texas not in um, texas <laughs> but yeah she um she spoke of having this neurological condition called alice in wonderland syndrome which was which is a condition that means that basically people who have it can't consistently perceive the scale of objects or their own bodies so like if like it's something that sort of comes in like episodes a little bit you know where they'll have moments where they kind of will genuinely feel like they're just like a couple of inches tall or they might feel like they're the height of like an electrical pile on or a skyscraper or something Mm -hmm. you know um and for for this person um like just exploring this erotically just became a way of her just really coming to terms with her condition and just just embracing it basically just being able to be comfortable in her own skin yeah yeah and yeah i think had i not had like just the ability to come out and just sort of make this work just as someone who's very kind of out and proud about their gender identity about their kind of neurodivergence and about their kink Mm. you know like i mean it like a lot of this just wouldn't happen otherwise like it, it like the world needs people without those filters a lot of the time yes you know and i mean sometimes like I mean, it needs it needs of them reason, you know. I mean, I mean, you, you sort of hope that somebody who's like not going to filter is sort of on the right side of the political spectrum, course, you know, yeah, the, yeah. or the correct side, I should say, um, <laughs> and kind of just won't twist that into just something that could be like horrifically repressive, you yeah. know. But like, I think that yeah, that's that's like that's how you move forward, right? Yeah, I I feel I feel like just yeah, I, I feel like just having that combination of of just imagination and that kind of just lack of filter that ability to just say and i'm going to come back to my my cabaret performance yesterday where like i was i i did perform like something that is like a very kind of like i mean it kind of like epitomizes the idea of this very kind of like radical socio-political like sort of kink fantasy mm-hmm. like it was a piece where i kind of like I have this persona um who is named Nancy Archer. She's named after the um the monster from Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman. Um and I sort of performed this whole piece. It was a manifesto piece. It was sort of kind of inspired by um Solanas' Scum Manifesto, um, where I kind of like I talked the crowd through like this idea of like needing to just eradicate the kind of the the kind of in, environmental and psychological um remnants of um of things like heteropatriarchy of capitalism of hypermasculinity that we see kind of like etched into like I, I sort of I sort of create a lot of imagery surrounding like the um like ideas of like the cold grey skyscraping canyons of cap of capitalism that sort of line Manhattan and the kind of like 
the fascist architecture of um of washington dc as i kind of perceive it like these sort of very dramatic like do- like sort of towering domes and porticos and obelisks kind of arranged in this very kind of overwhelming way mm-hmm. and like the idea of like atomized suburbia as well as being this place where you just can't build proper community you know you can't build something that's kind of just queer and tender and just you know just fluid in a space that's that's sort of designed for anything but that Mm -hmm. and like the idea of just needing to destroy all of that before we can get on with building utopia and then proceeded to sort of talk everyone through the benefits of just transforming themselves into like city-sized goddesses who can just like essentially grind Manhattan Island off the face of the earth Mm. um whilst sort of having like just being shot at by warships and nuclear weapons and having that just be like this just sort of mesmeric like sort of erotic sort of experience you know Uh and like just yeah so Mm. I can't even remember what my point was here but like (laughs) I just yeah I I feel like I felt the fact that I'm I'm sort of able to do things like that as well like in front of audiences and in front of like my A-level physics teacher <laughs> yes. was at the show last night and I was sort of saying to them, I like probably pointed this out to the crowd that he'd walked in. And like I said, this is this is the man that like taught me about sort of like astronomy and the sort of like and the sort of like the sort of like orbital motions of celestial bodies. And I'm like, I have probably dreamt about fucking a lot of those celestial bodies that you taught me about uh-huh. and like being very open about that but like yeah like it's <laughs> it's, it's kind of a wild perspective on just like sociopolitics and sort of relationships with the body and relationships with the environment but like I do also attach myself to a lot of other people who don't have those necessary filters I mean I mentioned Catherine Gates earlier yeah. who was she wrote a book called Deviant Desires, which was a a massive resource for me, sort of exploring kink space. And she's also like a person with absolutely fuck all filter when it comes to these things. She's very open about the fact that she kind of wrote this book and started doing all this research into kink and like collecting this massive collection of like erotic zines from the 90s back during the kind of self-publishing boom of that era Mm -hmm. just because like she was autistic and she wasn't kind of certain of like she she was confused about her own sexuality and her relationship with her body and thought that she just needed to find what turned her on you know yeah which is not an uncommon experience for autistic people to go through and I've, I've found that by kind of talking to a lot of autistic and neurodivergent people looking through like autistic forums online for example it's a very common thing that like particularly people that aren't particularly sexual who who may who may be somewhere on the asexual or aromantic spectrum yeah, yeah. just end up just overcompensating and going hard into kink and fetish space just to try and find <laughs> something that will turn them on and, and make them feel normal wow. um and like it's the same thing with um with annie sprinkle who i also mentioned earlier the um the the post-porn modernist herself mm. um like you think about the work that she's been doing with her partner Beth Stevens at the moment where like they have this concept of ecosexuality which is kind of similar to my own ideas of of kind of like sort of 
sexuality and relationships with like the socio-political and environmental world just without the kind of destructive elements that I kind of bring to it which is all about kind of like embracing the earth and nature as a kind of as as lover basically um and they do all these like amazing kind of like sort of love and sex rituals involving like the the natural environment and everything and like and like Obviously, we're talking about an artist there in Annie Sprinkle, who's probably most famous for, like, her piece Public Cervix announcement, in which she, like, literally kind of got up on stage, like, sort of opened herself up with the speculum and invited, like, patrons Ooh, at her show to, like, you told me look about that. inside her. Yeah, literally <sighs> sort of get, like, sort of... I don't know which... I don't know what visual equipment they use, but literally just to take a look inside her her sort of vagina and her cervix and everything, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. I think, I think we need more of that in a way. Like, I, I... I'm a very honest person. I don't... I don't like to lie about myself. I don't like to conceal things about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is also... A lot of the environments I found myself in as an adult, and I think... This is also kind of true of Wilton's as well, frankly. Like, yeah. the fact that I've been able to talk about a lot of these things with co-workers who haven't sort of found them sort of strange or off-putting, really, or at least haven't told me that they have, that they have. <laughs> um, and, it's so like, funny. it's just... It's just it's so, nice. it's just so, yeah, I'm so thankful for the, that those yeah. kinds of spaces exist. And I think that, that more of the world should be like that. Like people should, people should be willing to sort of cast off those kind of like pretentious filters, you know, when yeah. it comes to, when it comes to just, but I guess, I guess people are so like attached to the idea of keeping up appearances, oh, which yes. is not, which is not something that I don't suffer with. Like, honestly, we I don't. Do. I think a lot of my work at the moment is massively overcompensating for me, kind of like, feeling this very kind of like i don't know british sense of um like emotional repression i guess mm, um yeah i mean we are kind of running a bit out of time just, yeah <laughs> I, I was expecting this was going to but happen i, I mean I, I, I want to just keep talking to you for the whole day like do a day podcast because it's yeah. so interesting uh, maybe just before finishing, do you have any coming project for the future you want to share here? Um, or? So, I mean, the piece I'm working on at the moment, um, which is it's going to be a very long term thing. Like, I'm I'm anticipating it taking about like four or five years to fully manifest. Mm-hmm. Um, is it's I'm currently writing um, what I consider to be like the ultimate adaptation of the Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman story. Um, so, as I said, I sort of like took on like I sort of took on the name of Nancy Archer from Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman and I've kind of been reimagining her story as being a story where like because of the fact that she's like a very kind of a very kind of just socially oppressed figure for her body and for her sort of relationship with gender and sexuality um she kind of decides to turn herself into the kind of giant monster um, rather than kind of have it have it being done to her. Like in the, in the kind of previous film adaptations of that story, you saw like in the original film from 1958, it was a male alien who sort of transformed Nancy into the 50-foot woman in the 1993 remake um it was a it was a series of female aliens who did it 
and in my version of the story, I want it to be something that is a conscious choice made because Powerful. of the, because of like the kind of oppression and injustice she she sees from the world that she perceives like aimed at her own body and perceived at sort of other sort of queer or sort of like gender non-normative bodies that she sees around her mm-hmm. um so i'm currently writing a a book um which is called um which is just kind, it's kind of called nancy um it's called nancy unfucks the world but okay. like there is like halfway through the story like she crosses out the un and it just becomes nancy fucks she the world fucks the and, word. Like, <laughs> yeah I, i'm planning on i'm planning on like because i want to self-publish the book um like we're actually kind of recording this in my sort of printing space. Like I have my <laughs> risograph printer just like over in the corner there, oh, yes. which I'm going to use to, to print my book. Um, and I'm going to have those two sides. So- that, that, that it's going to be sort of double covered. I'm going to have one side that says Nancy unfucks the world and one side that says Nancy fucks the world. But it's going to be like half it's fiction, half it, half it's kind of telling the story of these these two young women who were sort of like late teens, early 20s, who like sort of run away from school slash work, like take up sort of essentially squat in this flat in like suburban LA basically um, and build up this community of other kind of like just oppressed, like sort of non-normative sort of like women and queer and trans and trans figures and then basically just like transform themselves into kind of literal living goddesses who can actually bring about the change they want to see in the world who can actually kind of strip america of this very kind of like heavily kind of atomized heteropatriarchal kind of hyper-capitalist space Mm. and sort of like like produce like their utopia in its place and it's also going to be twinned with a lot of a lot of non-fiction texts like a lot of a lot of new non-fiction writing, like interview extracts, um, which I'm, I'm considering also doing this project as a practice-based PhD, like going forward Ooh, as well. So okay. it might even turn into oh, like great. an actual PhD thesis Whoa. as well. Um, Exciting. But yeah, no, it's it's been going on for about, it's been going on for almost a year already. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I, I kind of want it done by 2028 because... That year is the 70th anniversary of the release of the original um, United Artists Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and the 35th anniversary okay. of the remake, which means we'll be as far which means we'll be as far from the remake as the remake will be from the original, which means we'll be overdue a new adaptation of the story. <laughs> so people and, put Yeah, that I in kind of diary. wanted to create the ultimate kind of like queer like sort of gender fluid feminist version of this story uh-huh. um that really really turned Nancy Archer into a legitimate rebel yeah um you know and still still played with the idea of like there's a lot of like ideas of power dynamics and playing with the idea of like lack of autonomy in those original films that sort of women experienced throughout sort of like mid 20th century America mm-hmm. but like I I really wanted to create something that just really got radical with that idea and you know and sort of like created a, a, a space where something where this this kind of where that where this 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 woman actually like actually said to, like wanted to say to herself like i am going to transform myself into this monster i'm going to kind of martyr myself for the good of just all the queers basically 
all the kind of repressed queers and femmes and trans people, like the neurodivergent people of the world who just cannot sort of cannot be fit into the world as it currently exists or cannot be very easily assimilated and just leave a world behind where that world that kind of like very tender compassionate world where everyone can kind of be where everyone's kind of free to be themselves you know oh wow like can exist yeah so that that's that's my current work and it's going to be my current work for a a long time going into the future and i'm also, just, just to finish off, I am also going to be taking a lot of this work to the US next year. Mm-hmm. So I have been invited to like show off some work and also perform um, with the um, with the Coney Island Burlesque next year. And also at, um, at SizeCon, which is like an actual like convention for sort of like size kinksters, a lot of whom I've sort of like, like sort of like done research interviews with or um or like yeah or obviously just like this this work is kind of for them as well like it's also just like a massive a massive effort of just dragging like sort of the idea of the erotic imagination in general um and kind of like size kink in particular kind of out of the shadows a bit and just exposing it as this like just amazingly creative and hilarious and like potentially um sort of revolutionary space that it could be mm-hmm. um well, so great. i yeah. mean i will put the links to like your instagram and website and yeah, everything in um, the, the notes yeah thank but you but yeah you if, so if you want me to shut up i will finally shut up shut now up. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but thank you so much i mean That's that okay. was really really great well oh 